Welcome to Three Strands Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon you're about to hear. At Three Strands, our mission is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. I hope you're learning something as we study through the book of James, kind of verse by verse, line by line. We don't always do it that way, but that's how we're doing this. And so if you want to follow along with us today, we'll be in James chapter 5, wrapping this series up next week. And uh, we're going to cover James chapter 5 this week and next week. So if you want to turn there or click there now, the verses will be on the screen also. But you can uh, follow along um, on your own, in your own Bible if you'd like also. And so uh, we're doing this series where James, or we're calling him Jim, I guess, Jesus' half-brother, is teaching us how to grow up in our faith, how to get stronger, how to exercise or work out our faith. How to have a faith that's living, not a faith that's dead. And that's what was kind of so disturbing in this whole idea for me is that it's not like he's comparing faith that's living and works with like atheism or paganism or some kind of hatred of God. No, he's really comparing it faith that works and produces fruit in your life and is living and breathing kind of faith with a phony fake faith that might look like the right kind of faith but really is dead on the inside. And so that's scary because you could be guilty of like dead kind of phony fake faith and you might have kind of pulled the wool over your own eyes and not even realize it. So that can be kind of scary. But he's teaching us how to grow up in our faith. And so he writes this letter. It gets scattered around, um, distributed around to all the Christians of the kind of known world at that time. It's the first book of the New Testament that's written, even though it's kind of tucked near the end of the New Testament. Chronologically, it's like the first one written. It's only about 10 years after Jesus rose from the dead. And James writes about as close to Jesus's teachings as you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. He's the closest to like an Old Testament book we have in the New Testament. It's written almost like the book of Proverbs, like a bunch of wise sayings and a bunch of uh, kind of short, pithy advice for life on how to get the most out of the Christian experience. And so he's covered a lot of topics, and we've covered a lot of them already, you know, controlling your tongue and not treating certain people different than you treat other people and how do you deal with difficult circumstances that come into your life and how can you overcome temptations that are super intense that you're facing and, and uh, uh, loving on and serving those who can't repay you and can't serve you back. And he's kind of hit a lot of these topics already. He's going to almost repeat some of them at the tail end of his letter here. Um, but let me just kind of recap for you. Back in week one, we asked this question, how do you get through what feels ungetthroughable? And James's answer was, you do it by continuing to be obedient to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. No matter how difficult the trial, no matter how intense the temptation, you just keep pressing into the Jesus way and being obedient, and it'll work out God's way in the end. Then in week two, he talked about faith, real faith versus dead faith, living faith versus dead faith. And he said, your faith will drive you to live like Jesus lived. And if it doesn't, it's not faith, it's fake. And then in week three, we kind of looked at this idea of a faith that works versus a faith that's worthless. And James kind of pointed out some of the differences between those two types of faith for us. And then in week four, we looked at the idea that the words we speak ought to match the, the labels we wear or the identities we say we are. If we tell people we're a Christian, if we walk around fronting as if we're a follower of Jesus, then our words ought to match up with that. It's not enough to just have the right beliefs on the inside. It's not even enough to then go out and just do the right things. You also have to follow that up with some words of life and not just speak words of death to everybody around you. 
And then uh, if you were here last week, week five, we talked about how messed up our motives are, and that they create chaos and fighting and wars all around us, and they separate us with God, and they um, cause us to feel completely unsatisfied in our life. And James's conclusion was we have to take those motives and force them uh, to line up with God's desires, God's laws, God's plans, not follow our own pride, want to spout off our own opinions, or just be concerned about our own dreams or plans, but to force our motives into alignment. Like Paul said one time, I beat my body into submission so that once I preach to other people, I won't go out and do the opposite. I won't be a castaway. I won't be a hypocrite. So I have to force myself to do the right things sometimes. And I think sometimes you come to church and you like see the preacher or, or somebody that's been in church a long time or a, uh, somebody you really respect that's kind of older in the faith and you look at them and you think like, man, they get it all right. And like the truth is we don't get it all right. Like I have to beat myself into submission all the time. I don't wake up every day wanting to read my Bible. I don't wake up every day wanting to pray. I don't wake up every Sunday wanting to come to church. I have to force myself into God's plan sometimes because I'm just like you. We're selfish we're lazy, we're concerned about our own plans and desires. And so it's a battle for each of us who say we're Christians to force our motives to line up with God's desires, his laws, his plans along the way. And so here we are on week six, and we're going to start chapter five. And I haven't done this the other weeks of the series, but I'm going to give you my title for today, Eyes on the Prize. Eyes on the Prize. And so I haven't done that up to this point, all the titles for these sermons have been kind of like, I don't know, kind of related to the idea of like working out or exercising. And it felt a little cheesy to like share all those with you. So I just kind of like kept those hidden. But today I wanted to share this title with you because it really sums up in just four words what James is going to teach us in 12 verses. He's going to try and teach us like it's super important if we're going to grow up in our faith, if we're going to have a faith that works and not a faith that's worthless, if we're going to have a living faith, not a dead faith, if we're going to have a faith that stands up in the real world, doesn't crumble under pressure, then we're going to have to keep our eyes on the prize. We're going to have to look ahead. I don't know if this is true. I'm not a track star like some of the people in our room. I'm not a track star. But every time I've ever watched a race, growing up on TV, at a live track meet, whatever, whenever you see somebody like looking back, to see how close somebody else is getting to them, it's almost like you know they're about to lose. Like you know that person's about to overtake them. It's like they, they feel it and they kind of look back as they're running and it's like they're about to get lapped or passed or beaten, right? And so James is going to kind of teach us this principle. Hey, you're out there, you're working out your faith. You're growing spiritually. You're trying to do some of the right things. You're trying to speak words of life. You're trying to force your motives to line up with God's motives in the way you live. And I need you to know that along the way, there's going to be a lot of enemies that try to pass you, that try to convince you to give up and quit, that try to um, stand in opposition to your growth. They're going to belittle you. They're going to talk down about, it, about you. They're going to try to pull you away to a different path. There's going to be a lot of adversity along the way, a lot of challenges you're going to face. And, and when those come up, you're going to have this feeling inside like I'm ready to toss in the towel. I'm, I'm about to quit. I can't do this anymore. I can't live this way anymore. It's not working for me. 
It might work for other people, but this Jesus way, it just doesn't hold true for me. It's not working. And you're going to want to bail on the whole process. And James is going to say to us today, like, in those moments, you got to keep your eyes on the prize. Get your eyes fixed on heaven. Your eyes fixed on the reward Jesus is promising you. Your eyes literally fixed on Christ and off of the enemies off of the opposition, off of the feelings inside of you, off of the, what your eyes can see and what your eyes should be focused on. And so it's like James is going to kind of tackle that for us. To do that, he's going to give us a bunch of warnings. He did that last week too, but he's going to give us four more warnings this week, written very similar like the book of Proverbs, where he's going to bust through these warnings. But before we look at those, I'll show you all four of them. Before we do, I want to show you this phrase that keeps coming up over and over in the 12 verses. In fact, it keeps coming up over and over in the whole five chapters. Here it is. He says, dear brothers and sisters, four times in these 12 verses we're going to look at today, this phrase comes up, dear brothers and sisters, 13 times in the short five chapter book, it comes up. It's almost like, come on, James, we know who you're talking to. Like, move on. Why does he keep repeating this? Why is it so um, intense for him to keep saying this. Why does he keep coming back to this same phrase, the same term? Uh, and in these 12 verses, it's like more than anywhere else in the book. He doubles down on it over and over and over and over again. Dear brothers and sisters, it's really dear brethren is how it really should be translated. And you probably get that if you're looking at like the King James Version, but we're politically correct, so it's like brothers and sisters, I guess. But really what he's saying there is like, Dear family members who aren't my blood relatives. That's kind of what he's saying. Like in Greek, uh, the word is adelphoi, adelphoi. Stay with me for a second. This can be a little like kind of below the surface for us, but it's adelphoi, right? And so it comes from this word adelphia in Greek, adelphia, right? Now, some of you that have been in church or grew up in church, you've heard like Greek words for love before. And you know that there's one Greek word for love that's phileo, phileo, phileo. And that's the word we get for like the city of brotherly love, right? Philadelphia. So if you put these two Greek words together, it's literally phileo and then it's Adelphia. So it's like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And what he's talking about is literally like a love you have for other people who you consider to be your family, even if they're not related to you by blood, right? And he keeps saying this over and over again. Now, we talked about this back in week one, the idea that James is writing this letter to other Christians. He considers them to be excellent. Good job, Jeremiah. He can, Tiffany was like all embarrassed when he dropped that. And he considers them to be like his family, his brothers and sisters, right, in the Lord, his fellow Christians. And so he keeps saying this term over and over again, my fellow brothers and sisters. The ones who are just like me, the ones who are in the same family as me, the like brothers from, you know, another mother, right? All right. So, okay. And so he keeps saying this over and over. That was fun, way funnier when I thought about it at home. I just want you to know that, Lily. But, uh, and so, um, okay. So he keeps saying this phrase over again. Now, why does he do that? Why am I pointing that out to you? Because it doesn't have anything to do with the four warnings he's going to give us, except for the fact that it seems like he believes he has to keep reminding us this is for us. This isn't for all the atheists, pagans, and some tribe in Africa that you think don't know the Lord. This isn't for like your super ungodly neighbor that you've deemed to be a big sinner and in need of Jesus' help. This is for the Christians. 
This is for the brethren. This is for the brothers and sisters in Christ. This is for you. We need these warnings because we are all guilty of disobeying these instructions, not heeding this advice, and reaping all kinds of consequences for it. We've got to get to the point where we come into a church service or we open God's word in our living room or we kneel beside our bed in the morning and we aren't thinking about what everybody else needs to make their lives better, what everybody else needs to do to fix their spiritual condition, but instead we start asking ourselves, what do I need to do? Jesus said it like this, it's so easy to look and see the speck of dirt in somebody else's eye but completely ignore the log that's sticking out of your own eye. Don't do that. we got to stop thinking like this passage really applies to my husband. Or man, I wish my kids were in here to hear this. And instead we got to take God's word and be like, what is it from God's word I need to hear? That I need to put into practice today? That I need to change about me? What warning do I need to heed? Okay? And so he keeps reminding us of this. And this is why I think he does it. So we can remember, this message is for you. Those who say they're Christians, those who want to grow up in their faith. James chapter 5, it's going to start in verse 1. And he's going to give us these kind of four warnings. Let me give you them, and then we'll look at them together. Here's the first one. It's a warning about misusing riches. A warning about misusing riches. Now, I've had some people in our church tell me before, like, we talk about money too much. Okay? And I've had some other people in our church tell me we don't talk about money enough. So I don't know what that means, other than that typically I think the people that tell me we talk about it too much don't give. <laughs> and the people who say we don't talk about it enough usually give. So I don't know if that's true or not, but it's like, I don't know if we're talking about it too much or too little. All I know is we're talking about it every time it comes up in the Bible. That's all I know. So we're studying through God's Word. I can't help it that God decided to talk about our money a lot. He just does. It's like he knows that there would be nothing that would compete for your heart and your allegiance with him more than your finances. And so he keeps talking about it over and over. And so he's going to talk about it again. We're going to look at it again because we're going to look at it and be true to God's word every time we come across it. But the first warning he gives is a warning about misusing riches. Let me read for you what he says. And ironically, he spends the most time on this one. Make whatever you want of that. But he spends six of the 12 verses on this one. He gets to the last one, calls the last one the most important of the four. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I can even see how the last one's the most important of the four or why this first one gets the most words spoken about it. But it's what he does. So let's look at the text together. James chapter 5, verse 1. It says, look here, you rich people. Now, who is he talking about? That's us, in case you weren't sure. You're the rich people. Okay? Like whether you're here and, and you have like the jo- job of your dreams or you haven't worked a day in your life, you're a rich person. I just want you to know that. Like if you live in America, you're rich. I hate to tell you, like the rest of the world doesn't have it like we have it. So people in America who have never worked a day in our, their lives have it better than half the world. So we're in the rich half of the world. So he's talking to us. He's talking to each of us. He says, look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. That's gross. 
This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have, have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. What is he talking about? So he starts off this passage and, and, and just kind of like, if you didn't miss it, it's a warning about misusing riches, right? And he starts off this passage by saying, listen up, rich folk. Listen up, rich folk. Trouble is headed your way. And you're like, what kind of trouble could be headed my way? I'm rich. Right? Like, well, well, I thought riches would like take care of all my trouble, protect me from a lot of trouble, answer a lot of the problems I might face in life. What trouble is coming my way? He's going to give us two pieces of trouble that are headed your way if you're the rich person. So if you're the rich person in the room, that's all of us, right? Be ready. Here's the trouble that's headed your way. You ready? The first one he says is this. All those riches aren't going to last. They're going to fade away. They're corroding the clothes, the fancy clothes you got. Nobody in the room has bought the last shirt of their life. I mean, unless they die today, I guess. But like, you're going to have to probably buy some more clothes. They're going to wear out. You might grow out of them. Just saying, like, you know, I grow out of my, sometimes my clothes shrink, I think, in the laundry is what really happens. I don't ever really grow out of them. But it's like they shrink or they get faded or they get holes in them. They get moth-eaten, he says, you know. Like, put some mothballs in your closet, for goodness sakes. You know, but they wear out, and you have to buy new clothes, right? The money you've got now will fade away. It'll disappear, and it could be gone like that. One stock market crash here, one family emergency that comes up here. I met a lot of people in my life that do, like, super well managing their money, and they're wise, and they save, and they invest. And then all of a sudden, one unforeseen medical problem comes up, and bam, it's all gone. Everything they had in savings gets spent. You say, well, she should have had health insurance. Yeah, they have health insurance. Then the health insurance dropped them or the health insurance doesn't pay for all the miles they got to drive and the time they have to take off work and the career they had to cut short because they got cancer or they got whatever. You know, it's like all of a sudden you're left with somebody at home that had a stroke and can't take care of themselves. And, and you're like, well, how, I got the health insurance. We're like, how do I pay for somebody to take care of them? Am I going to quit my job and take care of it? It's like all of a sudden, all the planning you did, all the saving you did, all the wise investing you did, doesn't look like it made a difference now because it can be taken from us like that. It can be ripped out of our hands. It'll fade away. And even if we could manage to hang on to all of it, the day we die, it's all gone. There's not one person that will take a dollar with them. And so James's instruction is like, be, be ready. Trouble's coming your way, rich people, because, hey, it's not going to last. The riches aren't going to last. But then he gives us kind of like this second piece, like, well, why else is trouble coming my way? And he says, because you've wasted all that you had. Trouble's headed your way because you did not invest your riches in things that would matter for eternity. You invested your riches to meet all your desires, to live in luxury, to have every convenience you could ac accumulate for yourself. And so troubles headed your way. And he says, on top of that, like, there's some people you've stepped on along the way to get ahead. There's some people that, like, you abused and mistreated along the way to make a buck. And the cries of those people is reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. And your day's coming. 
It's really what he's saying. It's possible that along the way, there are some innocent people whose blood will be on our hands because we didn't invest our riches to help them know Jesus. That's scary to me because I feel like I got a lot of conveniences in my life that I hold on to. And he's like, no, this day is coming where you're going to stand before the Lord and, and, and he's going to right every wrong. And one of those wrongs is going to be a, a looking at my riches and asking, did I invest those for things that mattered for eternity or did I waste those on satisfying my desires? It's very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. We call it the treasure principle. What Jesus said, don't store up for yourself treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and thieves break in and steal them. But instead, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth cannot eat them and rust cannot destroy them and thieves cannot break in and steal them. For wherever you place your treasure, there your heart will be also. Same idea, Jesus said. You can't take any of it with you, but you can send it all on ahead as an investment to heaven. So what about the first warning? Are you misusing your riches just between you and the Lord? We're not checking your bank account. We're not asking you how you leveraged all your wealth this week or this month or this year or this life. I'm just saying God talks about it a lot. Here's the second warning he gives us. It's a warning about losing heart. A warning about losing heart. Look with me at verse 7 in chapter 5. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, there's that phrase, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look forward, they eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage. For the coming of the Lord is near. Now skip to verse 10. It says, For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the, there's that phrase again, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. The Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. A warning about losing heart. What does it take to not lose heart? To not give up? To not quit? To not bend under the pressure? He gives us two things it's going to take to not lose heart. The first one, he says, is going to take patience. Did you hear it in there? He's like, be patient. Jesus is coming back soon. Don't worry. Be patient. I know you think you're poor. He's probably talking in this paragraph to the very poor people that were being oppressed by the rich people he just told to stop abusing them, right? So now he's like, I told the rich people to be on guard because they're about to get theirs, you know? But now let me talk to the poor folks who are suffering and being abused and oppressed by these other people. Like, take heart. Take heart. Jesus is coming back soon. You're going to have to be patient. Don't, don't give up. Jesus will come back. And, and when he comes back, he's coming with kindness and mercy and tenderness. He's going to right all the wrongs that you've had to endure. It's going to take some patience. And then he gives us this second piece. What else is it going to take to not lose heart? He says it's going to take courage. Take courage, he said. Patience and courage. Because I'm going to want to give up. 
But Jesus will come back, and when he does, it'll all be fixed. And so it's affliction, and it hurts, and I don't like it. I feel like I'm impoverished and poor. I feel like I can't ever get this Jesus thing right. Keep with it. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Be patient. Take courage. He says, look at the examples in the Old Testament, the prophets. Specifically, he says, look at Job. They, they suffered a lot, but they kept enduring. They kept pressing into God's way. And what was the end result for them? God treated them with kindness. God lavished them with mercy, tenderness. Same will be true for you. Warning number two, don't lose heart. Warning number three gives us is about not being judgmental. So warning about being judgmental. Now what's interesting is sandwiched in between those verses there, one to, one to ten, or yeah, one to ten, sandwiched in between there is you get this verse, maybe one to eleven, can't remember now. You get this verse nine, it's a warning about being judgmental. It doesn't seem to make sense. It almost seems like an out-of-context verse, but let me read it to you in verse nine first, and we'll talk about it. He simply says, don't grumble about each other. Don't grumble about each other. I wonder if we're guilty of that one. I might have been guilty of that one this week with some of you. Who knows? Like, I grumble about people all the time. I'm just saying, I'm a grumbler. I mean, I'm just as guilty as you are. Brothers and sisters, there's that phrase again. Or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. This is very similar to what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7, the beginning of Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, do not judge or you will be judged. With the measure that you judge others, you will be judged the same way. And then he goes on to say what I mentioned earlier. is like, don't look at the speck in somebody else's eye, but ignore the log sticking out of your own eye. Deal with the log in your eye. Don't worry about judging everyone else. It's this warning for us to not grumble and complain about other people. It's interesting, as I was thinking this week, I was like, you know, it's like a good place for this. It looks like it's out of place, but it's really a good place for this because he just got done telling all the rich people, be forewarned, if you don't invest your riches for eternal things, your day's coming. And then he just got done telling all the poor people, like, don't give up in all this suffering. Jesus is coming back at some point. He's going to make it all right. And then sandwiched in the middle, he's got this, like, don't grumble about each other. And I thought about this week. I thought, you know what rich people grumble about a lot? Poor people. You know, you know what poor people grumble about a lot? Rich people. It's like, oh, those rich people. They don't even know what it's like to be me. They got it all made. They should help me out more because I need help. I mean, can't they see that I need more help? And then on the rich people's side, like these poor people, they won't work. They won't do a thing. They're the problem with society. It's like the rich people gripe about the poor people and the poor people gripe about the rich people. And James is like, hey, in the church, brothers and sisters, there's going to be some rich people and there's going to be some poor people and they're going to all want to grumble about each other. And he's like, don't complain about each other. The judge, he's standing at the door waiting to start the trial. And he doesn't need any help from you running his courtroom. You get it? A warning against being judgmental. He gives us a fourth warning. It's a warning about breaking your word. Let me read it to you. It's at the very end in verse 12. He says this, but most of all, it's fascinating to me, most of all, above all else, he says, my brothers and sisters, there's that phrase again, Never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just simply say yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. 
It's amazing that he thinks this is the most important thing, but he seems to double down again on this idea that we're supposed to control the things that come out of our mouth. He's talked about this about four or five times now in the four plus chapters we've looked at. As a Christian, as somebody who says you're with Jesus, control the stuff you say. And he says, don't make these oaths. Don't swear these vows. Don't make these commitments. Just let your word be your bond. This is very similar to what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5. All these warnings are warnings that Jesus gave us. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37, I taught on this last year. You can look back or listen back to a podcast if you want. It's a series we did last year called They Say, where they all say one thing, but Jesus says another. And this was one of the things Jesus said almost word for word from what James is saying here. James basically quotes Jesus. He says, don't make an oath. Don't swear by heaven or swear by earth or swear by your own life. And you're like, I don't ever do that. We do this all the time. I swear on my life. I swear on the soul of my dead mother. I swear on the lives of my children. I swear on my great-great-grandpa. And you're like, what? What does that even have to do with what we're talking about? And it's like this oath we take to swear that we're going to do something or follow through on a commitment. And James and Jesus are both like, don't do that. Just let people be able to trust what you say you're going to do. Here's what an oath is. You ready? Here's our definition of an oath. It's when you uh, make a commitment while invoking someone or something higher than yourself as a guarantee to the seriousness of your promise, right? And so the most common one you'll hear people say is, I swear to God, I swear to God, I'm going to do that. I swear to God I'll be there, right? Now, ironically, the Bible describes that as the only oath worth taking. That God is the only one we should ever swear an oath to. But we should only do it if it's something uh, so, so valuable, so precious, that it requires us to kind of like bring it into God's presence and be like, man, as the Lord lives, I will do this. In Jesus' name, I will live this way. It's like a, a commitment you might make like your wedding vows are a good example of that commitment, right? Or, or the day you decide to follow Jesus. Like, God, I swear to you, from this day forward, I will follow you. But all these other oaths, these lesser oaths, they just, they just lessen God's significance. And, and what had happened in Jewish culture was they had kind of developed this thing where they knew God's word in the Old Testament says, don't swear an oath unless you're going to swear the oath to God. So they had started swearing oaths to everybody for everything. I swear on, an, I swear on the name of heaven. I swear on earth. I swear on my own life. I'll do this. And then they thought they could break their oath because they didn't actually swear it to God. So they'd be like, oh, I swear, I swear by heaven that I'll, I'll honor that business deal. And then they'd break their word and think they weren't doing the wrong thing. And James and Jesus both point out like, that's not okay. That's not okay. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Wouldn't it be a better world if we could just trust what people say they're going to do? If people would have the courage to make a commitment and then actually follow through on it? You know what I've learned about our culture today? People won't even make a commitment anymore. Their word is so bad that they've even stopped committing to anything. Commit to be on a serving team and be somewhere every week? No way. I, I, I mean, I love coming to church, but I can't commit to be there every week. Commit to love, honor, and cherish my spouse? No, let's just live together because I don't want to make those commitments. Commit to give my money to Jesus? 
to support missions around the world? Commit to go to the creation and ark trip? I can't commit to something four months away. Who knows? We have nothing in us left where we can just say, yep, I'll do that, and people can bank on it. Our word gets broken so easily, like it doesn't even matter anymore. And James is calling that out and say, wouldn't it be nice if everybody lived the truth? Wouldn't it be nice if everybody lived just like Horton? I said what I meant. I meant what I said. Oh, wait, it's the other way. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful. Nobody else watches cartoons? What's wrong with you? 100%. You guys don't know what I'm talking about? Well, wouldn't we swap that out? Like, instead of Horton, it was like humans. Like, I'm a human. Like, I say what I mean. I mean what I say. You know what I mean? Like, couldn't we, wouldn't it be a better world if we all lived that way? Well, we break our words so easy. Now, show me all four of those warnings on the screen just for a second. Now, look at these just for a second. He's warning us about misusing our riches, warning us about losing heart and giving up in the fight to live and be like Jesus. He's warning us about being judgmental of others. He's warning us about breaking our word or, or, or ruining all the trust people have with us because they can't trust what we say, can't believe what we say. All four of these are tools that the enemy uses to try and get your eyes off the prize. Do you understand? Think about it for a second. Like What James is trying to say, what he's really trying to sum up for us today is this idea. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. You only get one life. Don't waste it abusing your riches. Don't waste it giving up and sitting things out. Don't waste it griping about everybody else and don't waste it ruining all the relationships around you because everything you say is a lie. Think about it for a second. Do you know how much time we spend pursuing riches? Do you know how easily we give up on God's way when something gets uncomfortable or awkward or somebody says something about us or we just don't like how we feel when we're there? And we just give up and sit it out. Do you know how often we criticize everyone else around us? Do you know how easy it is for us to speak lies each day? Do you recognize how much of our life we waste doing these four things? So much of it. And James is crying out to us as a church, not as a bunch of heathens, not as a bunch of outsiders, as a family. And he's saying, stop wasting your life. I brought this rope with me today. I had to move it away from the speaker because I squealed before church. But I brought this rope. I'm going to use this if I can. Now, this rope is not an infinity rope, like an infinity stone. But it is pretty long. And it goes just about, oh, I don't want to get too close to that speaker, from one side to the other. Now, I want you to pretend, just for a second, I need you to use your imagination. Pretend that this rope goes out through a hole in the wall, okay? And it just keeps going the whole way around the world. And it wraps around the world 20,000 times. Just keeps going forever. It's like an infinity rope, right? It starts here, but it just goes on forever. This rope represents your life. Now, it starts in a, a spot. This red spot I got right here at the end, this represents the time of our life that we spend on earth, okay? And what blows my mind is how much of this time right here we waste 
on this time right here. And it's like, and it's like we work and we scrap and we save and we plan. And we're like, oh, I'm going to work as hard as I can right here so that I can really enjoy this. You know what I mean? And you're like, there's all of this out here. Millions and millions and millions of years. And the Bible says that how I invest this tiny little part will determine what happens in all these millions and millions of years. And yet we get so distracted giving everything we got right here. Be like, oh, I'm going to really enjoy this eight years right here. Oh, I'm going to live it up, relax, enjoy my retirement. And so we bust it for 30 years so we can enjoy this. And then people will look at me and be like, you're such an idiot for investing everything you have on all of this. And I'm like, no, you're such an idiot. You're focused on this dot. And I'm focused on the rope. And we spend so much of our life wasting all of our time, all of our talent, all of our treasure on the red spot and ignoring the rest of the rope. Ignoring the millions and millions of years we're going to have after this. Giving up all kinds of reward there so that we can enjoy like 15 years of retirement here. And James is like, let me warn you. Don't waste your life. You can invest your life instead. Make it count. You only get one of them. You're not going to get a do-over on it. And so this week, you can spend your time, your energy, your money, your abilities, you can spend it all wasting or worshiping. The choice is yours. As always, the choice is yours. I will never stand before the Lord and give an account for what you did with your life. But you will. You will. And so I just ask you, church, today to kind of size up these warnings. And be like, how much of my life have I spent complaining about other people? How much of my life have I spent being dishonest and, and, and hiding the truth to try and keep the status quo instead of speaking what's true and honorable? How much of my life have I spent sitting things out because I'm scared or frustrated or angry? I just give up so easy. And how much of my life have I wasted financially on things that really won't matter in about 10 years or 20 years or 40 years? How much of my life am I wasting? And how much of my life is really worshiping? Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for our church family. It's a good church family, God. You've really blessed us with people who want to grow, who want to know you, who want to honor you. But God, would you open our eyes today? Would you give us ears to hear the truth? Would you help us and give us the courage it'll take to get our eyes back on the prize? To start investing our riches into eternity? To stop judging all the people around us and, stop, and start worrying about what I can do better for myself? How I can become more like Jesus myself? Would you help us to be honorable people who just speak the truth and don't lie about everything? Don't try to make ourselves look better or try to live phony? God, would you kind of open our eyes to these warnings and help us to see your kindness and your tenderness and your mercy that's waiting at the end, the end of this tiny little red dot that leads into a life that'll last forever. 
God, help us to worship and leverage our life for eternity, not to waste it on this tiny little piece of time we have now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, guys, we're going to do Echo Holy again. Is that okay? So if you guys will stand, we're going to close our service re-singing Echo Holy. We sing that right before I came up here. I just want you to put yourself at the end of time. You're standing before the Lord. He's talking to you about these warnings. What'd you do with the talent I gave you? What'd you do with the treasure I gave you? What'd you do with that little bit of life that I gave you? Wow, we hope that encouraged you and will push you to know Jesus better. There's no better life than the life that is completely dependent on God. Be sure to check back each week for new podcasts from 3SC.